You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Rob Dunn, who is a professor of ecology at North Carolina State and also the head of the Center for Holonomics at the University of Copenhagen. Also the author, along with Monica Sanchez, who is both your wife and your co-author and your co-adventurer from everything I've read in the book. And she's a medical anthropologist and your co-authors of this book called Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human. Rob, you're also the author of a couple other fantastic books. This one called Never Home Alone, From Microbes to Millipedes, Camel Crickets and Honeybees, The Natural History of Where We Live. And also this one here, The Wild Life of Our Bodies, Predators, Parasites, and Partners that Shape Who We Are Today. And so maybe understanding these three books helps us also to understand how you can be a professor of holonomics. So what the heck is holonomics? Hologenomics. Yeah. So it's a made up word. So, I mean, I don't know, we can pronounce it however we feel like today. So today it's holonomic. Historically, people who studied microbes, so it, things that are invisible without a microscope, and people who studied animals were in different departments. And even if they were studying the, the same interaction, they would study it from totally different perspectives. And so if I studied skin microbes, I'd focus on them. And if you studied skin, you would focus on the human. And so hologenomics is an approach where you study all that at the same time. And so a human and its microbes a goat and its microbes, a goby fish and its microbes. And this is made possible partially because the tools are now the same tools. And so I can study your genes and your microbes genes at the same time. And so it's a field that recognizes the value of holism, but at the same time reflects changes in how we study things. Yeah, I mean, in economics, we talk about partial equilibrium and global equilibriums. You know, we talk about microeconomics and, and macroeconomics, and it's it sounds like you are creating this new field, which could be the equivalent of macroeconomics for organisms. Although, I mean, isn't ecology supposed to be doing that? Isn't, isn't that what ecology was, was for? Yeah, I think ecology and hologenomics are two, two parts of this bigger story. And think about this. And then the ma macroeconomics, how does that link in? So I'd say ecology is most like macroeconomics in as much as it also has the rules. And so we want to understand, you know, what are the relationships between phenomena? What are the general rules and how do we use those to understand the world? And so it's all about like we love like things that look like they always hold in ecology like that oh, it makes people happy. We think it's beautiful. And I would say hologenomics is, is way more. It's a perspective of how we study mostly animals and their microbes and to a lesser extent plants and typically not to find general rules but far more often to understand histories. And so what is the evolutionary history of animals and their gut microbes? As humans and other primates evolved, how did they and their microbes change? And so it's way more typically interested in the particulars. And there are rules that are of interest but that isn't the main theme. Whereas with ecology, like we love the rules. If you find me a, a rule that seems to always apply to life, you know, I can hold it up like a great painting and everybody will stare at it and be pleased and smile in a, in a way that's deep and uh, contented. You know, when I was reading all three of these books, I kept uh, experiencing these wow moments, you know, and oftentimes I'll actually write in the, on the side of the text. I'll be like, wow, you know, and I'll put an exclamation point because, you know, I get the sense that you are someone who is sort of, you know, restlessly curious and not really 
constrained by any disciplinary uh, guidelines. And in fact, in this book, you mentioned at the very beginning that this was a work that combined ecology, anthropology, economics, you know, evolution, chemistry, psychology, physics, you know, all of those different disciplines. And I think all of it is kind of unified by this continual asking of the question, uh, why? Is this sort of the way you've always been? Or is this an approach which you came to after you went through the narrow funnel that we all go through of PhD? I probably know the answer to this because in the book, you talk about some of your early internships, right? I mean, you were doing this stuff when you were 18 years old. Yeah, and it's it's a good question. It's hard to look back on your own life and be honest about your interest at a particular time. If I look back, I think that at any given time, I was trying to pull these things together. And and I would say that for, you know, so as an undergrad, I was really interested in art and poetry and science. And I was following my curiosity. I was following what gave me joy and with sort of a rich experience of the world. And I didn't have words for it, but like I knew like, ooh, this is good stuff. And I also somehow knew in my primitive 18-year-old brain that the good stuff seemed to be coming from over here and over there. But then when I was a graduate student training, as you know, it's, it's very narrow. And so as a graduate student, some of my research was broad, but most of it wasn't. And so what I was far more often doing as a graduate student was multiple narrow things at the same time. And every so often I would see from one narrow thing to the other narrow thing and think, ooh, if I could bring those together. But I didn't know how to do that as a graduate student and even as a postdoc. And so it wasn't until I, I became a faculty member, I started to head grants or people in the lab. I started to realize, oh, this university thing has all these amazing people who know different things and started to recognize that I could pull these threads together across these fields and you could do it over lunch, you could do it over dinner, and that that was the part I really found the most joy in. But I would say I've always been like that, but I didn't have a way of making it a reality professionally for a long time. I mean, one of the great things about being a professor is that you can you know, somehow justify spending time in, in Spain eating cheese as part of your research. That is a lot of great travel stories in, in these books. So I want to just jump into the book Delicious. I think that to summarize the key claim, it's that we eat delicious things whenever we can. <laughs> it's a, sort of a non-controversial claim as humans, but I think within the, the discipline, it is controversial. Economists are, are, when they evaluate humans, they hypothesize that humans are maximizing their utility, their satisfaction, their pleasure. But when you know animal behavioralists try to explain animals, they say they're maximizing reproductive fitness, their inclusive fitness. And pleasure is not really a big part of it, or at least anything that is pleasurable is just a proxy for something that is enhancing inclusive fitness. And I think what you're trying to do here is you're trying to reconcile those and you're trying to show that there are these substantial overlaps, but then there's also sometimes where they don't completely overlap. And you know, just like sexual selection is something a little bit different, normal Darwinian selection, so too is this pursuit of deliciousness, something which has really motivated humans <laughs> through their evolution. What is so different about this claim? Is this claim in some ways inconsistent with the traditional animal behavior approach, or is it just an extension? So it doesn't feel like it should be radical. And we didn't write the book to be radical. We wrote the book to sort of link these things across fields. But I, but I think what we often started to find is you just articulated it very well, that when animal behaviorists study 
what animals do in the wild. They're often thinking about fitness. They're thinking about it in some of the same terms economists use. I mean, it's very direct walkovers. But they do so thinking about units of energy, typically. And so they imagine an animal as being like a robot in a way that goes out and somehow captures as much energy as possible with as little work as possible. And people who really study these animals, they know that's not how they work. They have great empathy for for the particular animals they study and their behavior. And if you ask them about what the animal is actually doing, they don't just talk about calories. They don't just talk about optimization. But when we go to write about what animals do, somehow we've decided, we decided tens of years ago, that this approach where we imagine them to be like robots is the best approach. And I think it inadvertently took the, the actual decision-making process out of the story. And so it took the deliciousness out. And yet it was kind of lurking there. And so that was one of the really fun things about the book is that we didn't have to go to somebody and say, well, your study of this animal, we think it's wrong. Instead, we could say, hey, you studied this animal and you showed that it often can find the calories that it needs and it's really good at it. Do you think it's finding them by choosing foods that taste better? And they would say, yeah, of course, they're not going to eat the thing that tastes worse. And so in a way, we're agreeing with the individuals who did this science but in doing so, it kind of changes how we think about these stories. And as you point out, it leads to these situations which, in which the way in which an animal is deciding what it should eat can get disconnected from what the optimal thing is. And those are kind of mistakes, ecological mistakes that are really telling. And so we go through some of these in the book. But I, th I think that there are lens into how important that moment is when an animal chooses a, a food. And I mean, just to think about like today, I was I watch crows a lot. Crows are amazing to watch them I mean, in Denmark. They're hooded crows all over the place. And I watched one hiding a French fry. And so it had chosen the French fry. It had decided the French fry was good and it had decided it was going to store it. So those damn magpies don't eat it. And, and so what was it doing? Was it thinking like this French fry represents this many calories and therefore I will store it in order to later have more calories? I don't think so. I think it was thinking this tastes good. I will store it so I can eat this thing that tastes good later. And that doesn't take anything away from the crow's ability to, to figure out how to negotiate its landscape. But it makes the crow in, in some ways more like us and us more like the crow. And I think that's what we're trying to do there is to recognize that we're animals and that because we're animals there, the other animals are also more like us than we think. When we talk about food, we, we say this tastes like X, Y, Z, or it has the following taste. Things don't have tastes. They have chemical properties and the taste occurs in, in the brain. There's some signaling that's going on there uh, where as organisms, we're trying to figure out what, what we should eat. But there's this flip side, which is that these these things we call food, they're on the one hand trying to avoid getting eaten, but they're also trying to, to get eaten sometimes. And so this is a kind of a co-evolutionary process. The signals might have a function that's designed to elicit a particular behavior from the animals or from the predators or the consumers of the stuff. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, but do you mean to tell me that the fruits are like chefs and that they're trying to make foods with chemicals that will appeal to the animals that they want to carry them to another place? And I was like, yeah. That is what I meant. We should have written that. That's a that's a good way of putting it. But that, so some species, well, some parts of species like fruits, they have evolved to have chemicals that appeal to the taste and the smell of the specific animals they want to eat at them. And then by the flip side of that is that many sort of the leaves of plants very often produce chemicals that relate to bad tastes in the animals they don't want to eat them. And so there's this kind of culinary dance between plant and animal and between lots of kinds of organisms. 
that's that's super fascinating and, and hinges on that bite that we all do that animals do. And what well, I think one of the most fascinating observations is that that it may be the case that putrescine and cadaverine, these odors that are emitted by decaying corpses, that these could very well be a, a strategy on the part of the, the bacteria to kind of keep the other scavengers away from the carcass to give the bacteria free reign to, to do its consumption unharassed. Yeah, this is an argument that Dan Jansen put forward a, a number tens of years ago now in a beautiful paper about why things rot. And so he argued that, that microbes, when they begin to break down a dead thing, they're trying to keep everything else away. And so that some of these aromas are actually intentionally aiming to smell like something that vertebrates wouldn't like. And so putrescine and cadaverine, like their names suggest, they're associated with dead bodies. And we know that some vertebrates, they instinctively dislike those aromas. And so some of the lab fish that people study, they actually have a specific aroma receptor in a special part of their nose. And at birth, if they smell that aroma, they go away from it. Dead stuff, not our thing. And so all these interactions are, are happening that are both influencing what any species thinks of as tasty and influencing what gets eaten and what doesn't. So I think part of your argument also is that the, the palate of flavors that we have, and every organism has a slightly different palate, and we can tell by looking at the receptors that they have in their tongues that the kind of palette of flavors that we have and the valence that we assign to these flavors is adaptive, right, to the environment in which we evolved. So in, in some sense, the, the kind of pleasures and, and displeasures of our palates is natural, right, for the most part. Obviously, there are some other things, right, some learned preferences, you know, those core preferences, salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and so forth are, are mechanisms to help with our survival. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think some of the best examples of how we think about this come from species that change their diets. And in response to or sort of in lock and step with those changes, their taste receptors change. And so the ancestors of hummingbirds were swifts and they fed on insects and they didn't have sweet taste receptors. But as hummingbirds started to feed more and more on nectar, maybe initially as a water source, those individuals that perceived it as tasty were more likely to survive. And so their sweet, ta their umami taste receptor actually evolved in such a way as to catch both the molecules that trigger umami, like amino acids, and also to, to catch sugars. And so now for hummingbirds, but not most other birds, sugars are sweet. And so it evolved in the context of their need but there's a long delay between a change in an animal's diet and the response of taste. And so you also have this opportunity for mismatches between what you're experiencing and what your taste receptors are telling you to do. And so, you know, when I go to the cereal aisle and all the sugar smacky things look so good, my tongue goes, yeah, yeah, more of that. It is no longer adaptive for any of us humans, given our what's available in our diets, but uh, selection's not acted. And so we have this mismatch between who we used to be and who we are and what's available now. There, there was one discipline that I had never heard of before, and I think you probably say that not a lot of people have, which was what? Stoichiometry? Is, is that how you say it? Yeah, I mean, it's a great discipline. Everybody who studies it thinks everybody's heard of it. I mean, this is the thing about the silos, right? <laughs> when we look around and we are with the people who study what we study, it seems like a big group. So the part of stoichiometry, that I, ecological stoichiometry that I'm talking about, is thinking about what's in an individual's body and then what's in its foods in terms of different elements? And how do you make those match? And so just to take a simple example, if you go outside and eat leaves, 
there's way less nitrogen relative to carbon in the leaves than there is in your body. And, and so you are so, somehow have to remedy that problem. The ratio isn't right. And one way to remedy it, and this is what aphids do, is just to excrete a ton. So, so you eat a lot and you excrete lots of carbon. You know, that, that's a hard way to go. Other way is to be guided toward those things that tend to be lacking in your diet. And so if you look at our taste receptors, they tend to match up very well with those things that tended to be lacking in the diets of our ancestors. And so animals have way more salt in their bodies, way more sodium than do plants, way more nitrogen, which you find in amino acids. And then they need sugar, not just for their cells, but for energy. And so these are all things we have taste receptors for. And so they match up with our typical needs. And then there's weird stuff here that one might imagine that we knew all that that at this point, we know all the taste receptors that like that's we figure that out because it's in our childhood textbooks. How could it not be figured out? But but people are discovering new taste receptors relatively frequently. And there are kind of two kinds. One is where we know there's a receptor, but we don't know what sensation it triggers. And the other is we know there's a sensation and we don't know what receptor it's associated with. And so we now know that there are calcium and phosphorus taste receptors and they do something. We, you know, we have them, but we don't know what the sensation is. Is it just unconscious? Is there something we're missing? And then by the same token, some people argue that there's a taste called kukumi, but we don't totally understand what taste receptor it's associated. It's a. It's still early days, and we understand far more about human tongues and taste receptors than we do about dogs or cats or rare jungle pigs or anything else. And so, for me, this is one of the great joys of writing about science: is that I can bump into these areas where everything is unknown, even though it's outside of my field, and then I can share it with people with the hope that out there somewhere is an undergrad student who thinks, oh my God, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to Kakumi and figure this out. And uh, I don't know if that happens ever, but it pleases me the idea that it might. I wonder why this is, has been so under-researched. I mean, it seems like we devote an awful lot of resources to, you know, discovering new stars and planets many millions of miles away. And yet, you know, here we have our body, which we're carrying around with us, and we have our food, which we eat, you know, all the time, and and we don't really understand it all that well. I mean, you talk in the book about how we only recently discovered kind of why we would have a propensity towards sour things, why we like sour things. This seems like a question that you mentioned Lucretius and some of the other ancients were asking these questions. Why do you think science hasn't really paid a lot of attention to things like taste? So I think there are a bunch of things. One is I think that once we imagine something is understood, it's really hard to unlock that thing again. And, and, and human bodies are like this. How could we not understand? So, you know, a few years ago, people looked at the appendix and the appendix was this vestigial organ. It didn't do anything. And nobody studied it because we knew it didn't do anything. And it's really hard as a young student, as a young faculty member, young researcher, to go and say, here's the thing that we know everything about, but I'm going to study it anyway. And so you have to develop a field tracker sense for where those things are. And and they become really easily missed. And so I think that's one piece is that there are just way more of these mysteries than we think. For me personally, the, the more someone describes something as well known, the more suspicious I get that something really big is lurking because we're just still so early in science. But I think the second thing is that often we don't have the right tool yet. And so I think taste receptors are like that, that for a long time, it was really hard, even if you knew what the gene might be for a taste receptor to then compare that from one species to another. It was expensive. Maybe if you looked at 
sweet taste receptors in humans. You could also look at them in rats. And then your PhD was over. Now, that's really cheap and easy. Easy is too strong. It's cheap and feasible. And so that's the other part is the technology that you need is sometimes lagging. And I think with taste, that's been one of the the pieces. And now we have genetic technologies that allow us not only to study taste in humans, but also to compare it. And so you can actually look at the genetic letters of the sweet taste receptor in humans or umami, let's say, compare that to a panda, compare that to a hummingbird. And then you can take those genes and you can put them into a lab organism or a microbe even and see what they do. And, and so that's really opened up all kinds of new things. And so I think for students, it's that intersection of the things we overlooked with the new technology. Like those are really exciting places to be where things can just leap forward. And then I don't know, the mouth seems kind of vulgar. I think if you're trying to be a fancy scientist, it feels like a backwater, a cave. You can study the brain instead. Why study the mouth? It was kind of interesting, this idea that if we can't see it, right, then we just assume it doesn't exist. So, you know, you talk about Leeuwenhoek and how the microscope created this new world. And this is kind of like the technology you have now where you, I remember Craig Ventner hearing him speak and talking about how you can just take a teaspoon out of the ocean and, or just scrape something off your skin or take the dust off your countertop and, and now figure out all the DNA that's in this little tiny drop of dust or water. That's really, I was at the dentist recently and, and I said, you know, I got this pain. So he did an x-ray and he said, I don't see anything wrong. So you're fine. Just because you can't see it on your x-ray, you know, maybe in 10 years you'll have an x-ray that can see it, but that doesn't mean it's, you know, there's nothing going on there. But there seems to be this, this bias towards if our technology cannot pick it up, it must not be there. Yeah. I, I think you've hit on another thing there too, which is that doctors, especially not all doctors, but many doctors get trained to treat known things. There's this idea of the horse, not a zebra. What's the common thing before you get to the rare thing? And being tra trained to treat known things also tr trains you to focus on the known. And so you have a lot of people who appear to be studying the body. And like we, de we depend on doctors doing amazing, important work. But superficially, you think, oh, they're all looking at this. But really, they're not. They're taking the known world and trying to make it useful to all of us. But for the most part, it's not their job to deal with the unknown world. And we had an example recently that Erin McKinney, who's faculty at NC State, she did a project that, at Duke, where you were for a while, where she and collaborators were having students take measurements on human cadavers in med school. And so let's not just learn about them, let's also take data on them. And when they did, the measurements that they focused on were measurements of the gut. And Aaron knew at this time that the data on the human gut and its variation were not good. They were very old, typically. And they were relatively narrow. You know, all humans are sort of like this or like that. And when they looked at something like 36 bodies, they found more variation in the large intestine length, small intestine length, and their ratio than was documented in the entire literature for humans. And if you would ask doctors, of course, people have seen this. This variation has been seen, but it's not been contextualized. And so there's that kind of gap, too. And I think that's a really exciting place for people to be because... Once you see what's been missed, you can make it useful almost immediately because then you can think what governs these differences and what are the clinical things you could look for and how do I make this useful for people? Going back to your question about have I always thought across these fields, to some extent, yes, and to some extent, no, but I'm 
very grateful for this period of my career when it's very easy. There are rewards for thinking across fields and a few penalties at this point in my career. And what a great luxury. Well, you know, to get back to that appendix story, in your other books, you talk a lot about medicine. And it seems most doctors have never taken a course on evolution. And since you've been trained in evolution, you know, you can see these things. And so when a doctor looks at the appendix, they just think, we don't know what it does. It's probably just a mistake, right? <laughs> but when you when you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, you, you think mistakes are expensive. <laughs> if one out of 30 people are going to die of appendicitis, then it's probably going to go away pretty darn quickly. So if it's still there, it must must have some kind of, of purpose. You know, how did that, that story and then seeing that people outside of the modern world don't get appendicitis, that's something probably that most doctors in the United States or in Europe don't really, they're not really aware of. How did people begin, to, do, do doctors need to get exposed to evolutionary theory? Is that a way, is a way of kind of a framework or a way of thinking about the body that's more productive and more likely to lead to insight? I think it certainly would, wouldn't hurt. I mean, y yes, I, I think they do. And there are places where this is happening. And so Arizona State does lots of work in this regard. I'm part of the Triangle Evolutionary Medicine Center. And this is a group of its clinicians and scientists who work together to think about how to use evolutionary biology, both in doing research on the body and in a clinical context. And so I think that can be very important. And I think even just the simple insight that, that you had there, that costly things t tend to be selected against. And so this needs to be explained one way or another. That's a very simple and yet somehow inobvious insight that I think it would be great if clinicians were thinking about that. I think the other part is comparative thinking, which is, it's what evolutionary biologists do, but it's kind of a specific subset. How do human bodies work versus chimp bodies versus dog bodies versus rat bodies? How important is it that most of what we know about humans we learned from rats and mice? And where are there big differences? And what blind spots might that give us? And so I think we need clinicians to have some sense of that kind of comparative thinking. And then I think the other piece, and this vets get this, but clinicians don't, the human clinicians don't as much, which is this kind of holistic thinking, one health it's often called where you're trying to think about the whole system. And so with your tooth problem, like to know about how your diet's changed, how your life has changed. Are you at home all day thinking about Corona and grinding your teeth? Holism that we afford dogs and cats, but way less often humans, I think it's also useful. And, and there are places that are for sure doing this, but it's not the standard yet. And it would be great for it to be the standard. Now, you mentioned coronavirus. I think one of the images, one of the lasting images that many of us will remember are these pictures of people going around spraying the New York City subway with antimicrobials and people hosing off their groceries, you know, when they come back from, from the grocery store. And there's this constant fear of, of pathogens that, that we've been experiencing. Certainly there's an instinctive part of it, but since Louis Pasteur, it's definitely taken off to, to an extreme. You emphasize the symbiotic nature of humans and bacteria and, and other microbes. And you mentioned that at the end of the day, there's really only about 100 bacteria, viruses, and, and, and fungi that we know about that are harmful. And there are almost an infinite number that are either non-harmful or beneficial. And yet we've been taking this approach for the last century at least, which is any bacteria is a bad bacteria, any fungus is a bad fungus and any virus is a bad virus. I think there's been some kind of change in the other direction, but that seems to still be kind of the dominant mindset. What's 
the resistance to a more holistic view of our symbiotes out in the environment? Oh, that's a, these are great questions. So I think one kind of resistance is industry. So we have a lot of industry dedicated to killing species around us. And that those industries are good at marketing. And that, you know, that goes from antiperspirants, which are sold even in places where people don't actually have the glands in their armpits that produce the aromas the antiperspirants are controlling. It's all the surface cleaners. So those are sold to us in a way that it's like the old cigarette ads, right? Like the cigarette makes you sexy and, and now killing all the stuff around you make, makes you good. It's not even sexy. It's something more essential than that. So I think that's actually a pretty big piece. I think there's another piece that's when we don't yet know about something, it's hard for our first reaction not to be to try to control everything. You know, all you've been told when Corona first shows up, you've been told out there is a dangerous thing. It is invisible and it could kill your family members. That is a powerful sentiment that plays to, to our deepest emotions and our deepest sense of our need to protect our families, our friends. And I mean, I see where that comes from. In a way, I think the other question to ask is, why haven't we gotten better at modulating those voices? How do we get better at controlling industry's voice and, and making sure it's, that there's some truths offered with these products that are being sold? And how do we get better at modulating our the voices manifest by our deepest fears and anxieties? And in the early days, it's really hard. Like when we first knew Corona existed, it's spreading, it's a danger. And we didn't yet know how important was airborne, how important was it that it lands on fomites, this on our stuff, our groceries, our, our, our food. And so in that moment, it's really hard to say what to do. And so it's actually hard in those early days to say, do this, don't do that. I think we, in a way we almost recreate the history of germ theory in those first moments. But then we start to know. And so at this point, we know your groceries are not dangerous to you. Your takeout food is not dangerous to you. If nobody in your house has been outside, your house is not dangerous. We can now really have a pretty fine-tuned view of what's dangerous and what isn't. But the messaging on that has not been clear. And so I think there's an important question there. How do we make it clear? And how do we find a way to create institutions that are trusted enough that when they say, look, this is dangerous, this is not dangerous, we just go about our days having listened to that message. And I would say, you know, I'm in Denmark right now, that the lots of Danish-American differences, too, too many to unpack in a simple comparison, but there's more trust of government and there's more trust of government scientists. And so when you ask people, why did you wear a mask or not? Why did you not wear a mask? Why did you change your behavior? People will say, well, the government said. And for a lot of people, that's sufficient without more, even for scientists, my colleagues here, I assume they thought about this a long time and they're experts. And so that to me is the other piece. How do we build and enough confidence in scientists and our systems of governance that when they tell us, look, a lot of these species are valuable, don't get rid of them. Look, you need good microbes on your hands. Your gut depends on your microbes. You have to act in a more sensible way toward them. That we go, oh yeah, okay, you guys have studied this. I trust that. What do I do next? And we don't have that. Yeah, sorry, that's a, it was a long answer, but it's an important question. But in a way, I mean, it's the experts uh, for the long time we're not recognizing 
a lot of this. And the people who were advocating it were weirdos. The idea of a fecal transplant, look, that's not something that the experts are, are were proposing. This is something that was some weird back to nature people probably were the ones that, that, that might have been the first to endorse this when it came up. What year is on the wildlife of our bodies? I don't remember. When was that published? I don't remember. Do you have that one there? Oh, uh, do you mean th this one is the uh, the wildlife of our bodies was 2011, wasn't it? So when I published that, there's a little bit of fecal transplant in there. I was talking about it in the context of the book. And at that moment, it was just crazy. It was like, uh, man, you university eggheads with your just crazy things. And now fecal transplants are ordinary. They're super common. And that's 10 years. Yeah, you're right. It's easy to forget about that part. But we've also changed our perspective a lot in that time. Yeah, you tell the story about staph infection at, at hospitals, and it kind of reminded me of the story about flip side of Semmelweis, right? Which is he discovered that washing your hands saves lives, and he was ridiculed, and, and it took a long time for his insight to percolate. And then, you know, was it in the 1950s or 60s that they discovered that you could use some strains of staph to, to block other strains of staph? But this insight was just never, it didn't really take off. Yeah. So it took off for a little bit. So there was a period in which babies across the U.S. were inoculated with beneficial staph and it worked. It could chase off the bad staph. But then really cheap antibiotics appeared, so methicillin. And for nobody studied the sociology of this in detail, but my, my thinking about what happened is in part that when you had cheap antibiotics, that was way more like all the rest of medicine. And so it was an easier way to treat infections when they turned up versus gardening babies. It was nothing like the rest of medicine. And so it was hard to make fit with all the other pieces. It required more training. But then the, the flip side of that story is then methicillin is what leads to methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which, you know, if I'm talking to a group of 100 people, 30 of them have suffered it. And so we took one road and left another one behind on that. Yeah. In some way or another. Well, doesn't, doesn't this open up the door to a whole new industry? When you have this chapter, which was gardening your child or gardening your, your skin or gardening your gut, we've been domesticating animals and domesticating and organisms for a long time. Why can't we think about gardening our skin, gardening our gut, gardening our household in a conscious way? And why can't this be the basis for an entire new industry? And certainly domestic agriculture is a huge industry. Why can't we have an industry around these other forms of domestication? One answer is that we already have it. So fermented foods are already this industry. So sourdough bread, kimchi, sauerkraut, they're already a version of this. They're gardens of microbes that benefit us. And so traditional chefs, traditional bakers, they're part of a version of this that has a lot of knowledge associated with it. The other answer is that companies like Novozymes, they see what you, that there's also a market for this. And so you can now buy products. There's now a cleaning product in the market that you spray around your house and it's live beneficial bacteria. Now, I would say like there's a lot there. On the one hand, the the food ecosystems, we've been working on those for 10,000 years and figured out how to make them work. First bread's 14,000 years old. These new things that come in a spray bottle, they, people have been working on them for a year and a half. And so we know way less about what they do and how to use them. I think there's only one company that I know of that is selling uh, probiotic skin bacteria. Is there a bigger industry out there, you think, on the horizon? Yeah, there are a few. So there's Mother Dirt in the U.S. There are a couple of European companies that are selling things. And I think that's a big thing on the horizon. Lots of venture capitalist money has gone in that direction. 
But the trick then is you've got hundreds of species on your skin. We don't understand them super well. We don't understand the immune system nearly as well as we would hope we would. And now you're going to add something to that. It is tricky. And I think we have an, a human tendency toward arrogance at the edge of hubris. One should be cautious as we embark on this next phase of agriculture. So I saw some parallels in the books where you were talking about kind of the ghosts of evolution. And I think most people don't understand that papayas and avocados and these uh, stinking toe trees and Kentucky coffee beans. I remember I had a Kentucky coffee bean tree in my yard growing up. That these were these evolved for consumption by creatures that that no longer exist. And so you can in, infer their existence by the existence of these fruits. That, that's right. I think it's wonderful. You go to the supermarket and look at the fruit aisle and think about this. Each of those fruits evolved to woo some animal. And what did they evolve to woo? And if they have a giant seed, think about a mango. Woo an animal big enough to swallow that seed because that's what had to happen for it to be dispersed. And so, and so it turns out that many of the fruits we most evolved to attract giant mammals. And those in the Americas and those in parts of Asia evolved to attract giant mammals that are no longer around, in part because those were also delicious mammals. And so mastodons, mammoths, giant sloths. And, and so there's a kind of ghostly presence in papaya and avocado and a lot of these species which is that the details of their fattiness, their sugars, their acids relate to the mouths of things that we can really only, you know, imagine and see from their, their fossils. And that's a crazy thing about our, our daily diets, I think, that we don't, we haven't really come to terms with it. It's a ghost in our everyday, or depending on how often you eat fruit, I guess. One of the things I found fascinating is that the flavor profile of the animals we eat is in part influenced by what they eat. I think as a chef, a lot of chefs know this and they select for cheeses and meats that are grown in particular locations or they have a terroir or they were harvested in particular seasons because of the, the growth in that season. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting was that sometimes the flavor is a function of what the plant is trying to deter from eating them. So that all the different flavors of thyme are influenced by whatever type of grazing animal is in that location. Yeah, I mean, I, that's an amazing one. That the most common, so different thyme varieties to follow that story out, produce different chemical defenses. And for most of our spices, the stuff we love about the spices are defenses. They're like dangerous chemicals. And so if you think about a landscape, which plants become common is, a, is the inverse of which plants the animals like. And so the smell of thyme as you walk through the, the Mediterranean part of France, say, it is the smell of the specific varieties of thyme that goats and sheep don't like and have not liked for thousands of years. And so it's this weird result of a war that's been won by this one time. And we just experience it as, oh, this is the, the most aromatically pleasing landscape in the world. And those kinds of ghosts are all over. And yeah, that and I never know quite how to write about them or think about them because it's such a, we don't have great words to describe those phenomena. And we have biologist words, which are inevitably um, like hologenomics, both uh, hard to pronounce and not quite as beautiful as the concept we mean to describe. But humans have this superpower that the other animals don't have, which is our culture. And when we eat things like spices and when we consume things like really strong alcohol or coffee, you know, our bodies are screaming, don't eat this. And yet we, we go ahead and, and eat it. And I remember I had dinner with Paul Sherman like 
20 some odd years ago. And, and he had introduced this hypothesis, this antimicrobial hypothesis for all the different spices. And so the question I would have is, why is this purely cultural, right? Why wouldn't we have evolved a taste for these things if they are in fact antimicrobial? Why would we not then have that detector broken? You talk about broken detectors. If this thing is, is good for us, why would our body continue to tell us that it's bad for us? Is it because the plant is evolving faster than we can evolve? Yeah, that's a very good question. So garlics and onions would be a good example here. So we know that garlics and onions have an antimicrobial component. So if you make a stew, you put a lot of garlic and onion in it and you leave it out, it takes longer to go bad than a stew that doesn't have the garlic and onion. But so why don't we then... Why do we have to learn how to like it? Why don't we... Why aren't we just born saying, yeah, you give garlic to a baby. Why doesn't the baby want to eat the garlic? Why do we have to kind of learn it? I think I mean, one part is that some of those things are recent. And so before we stored food, food, foodborne pathogens were not nearly as much of a problem. And so if you were eating everything fresh, you were suffering very few of the things we worry about with rotten food. So that's part. That's why it's not anciently part of our story. I mean, chimps don't really, very rarely do chimps get foodborne pathogens of the sort that we worry about. Because chimps aren't like taking a piece of colobus monkey putting it in the you know corner so nobody else gets it and eating it four days later. We do that in the time before refrigeration, we did it all the time. So that's part of it. But the other part is that as humans moved out around the world, in every place, the other aromas that were useful or beneficial were different. And so what you might learn to love in a particular place and use is not what was going to be useful the next hill over. And, you know, remembering that, like, we live from rainforests to dry deserts. We began to live in the world in a way we're learning each species and which was dangerous and which was not too simple. And so came to rely much more on learning, on the olfaction as it relates to learning and to knowing each thing differently in a new place. And to some extent, this was a key part of what allowed our ancestors to move around the world is being able to learn at, what was safe in a new place and then to teach it to their descendants. That's a kind of magic is to not have to, to try everything anew each time. And so I think once different populations are learning and eating different things, even if selection is acting, it's acting in a different way in each valley. And so it's really, it becomes really hard for particular genes to to come to dominate and the variation has to be there in the first place and that now i'm going on too long but it's a very interesting question i always thought that mexican dogs would love spicy food <laughs> you know chinese dogs would love spicy food and indian dogs love spicy food but i think you you show that they you mentioned that they don't really like it that's interesting though because there is a case like that it's been shown recently so in our mouths and in dogs mouth there's a there's an enzyme that's produced called amylase and amylase breaks down starch and when starch is broken down, it becomes sweet. And so the sweet taste receptors can detect it. Wolves have just one copy of this amylase gene, doesn't produce a lot of the enzyme in their mouths. Dogs have many copies. And so what appears to have happened is as we started feeding them more and more of our starchy foods, the individuals who could break down a little bit in their mouth and make it sweet and enjoy it were more likely to survive. And so there you do see this evolutionary change and so there are cases like that, but there are far more cases where you don't see it because that pressure has to be quite strong. Picking up on the ghosts of evolution theme, I know avocados are cool and all, but where I think this is really important is in the, in the context of our 
kind of symbiotic parasites, right? You described the story of Crohn's disease and allergies and other autoimmune diseases and the story of how we discovered these missing pathogens and these missing microbes. To what extent do we need to rethink our physical environments. We spend 95% of our time indoors and talk about this great study where they looked at the, the Hooterite dust versus the, the Amish dust and how it correlated with radical differences in autoimmune diseases and allergies. And even with mice, when you gave the mice access to the Amish dust, they didn't have these allergies and you gave them the Hooterite dust and, and they wound up with the allergies. Yeah, I wish I had video of those mice because they were sneezy mice. The effect is that when they had the more diverse dust, the hooterite dust, that is more farm animal microbes, more farm microbes in it, they, the, they didn't suffer from the allergy and asthma. Yeah, so this is tricky. How do we, you know, we evolved in a landscape in which we had daily exposure to soil microbes, to leaf microbes, to the microbes of other species. And, and not just once a day, all day. We evolved in a context in which each of us had many, at least three or four worm species living in our guts. And then in an incredibly short period of time, we move and transition so that most of our life is spent outdoors. And many people can't remember the last time they touched dirt. They touched a leaf. It's an awkward question to ask of an audience because you know, people have to lie because <laughs> Most days people don't. And so the, the easy part is there are some easy things you can do. You can open your windows, you can bring house plants in, you can get a pet. All of these things seem to restore some of these connections in ways that are beneficial. You can eat fermented foods. None of these things are a panacea, but they're all helpful. The trick though is in some cases, what we've lost are specific species with very complex lifestyles. And how do you bring those back in? And so some of the worms seem as though they have beneficial effects for some people sometimes. And they can be useful even in treating inflammatory bowel or Crohn's, maybe even MS. But we don't want to be living in a situation where everybody has worms that presents other problems. And so how do you restore some parts of the function of some of these species, but not all of them? Well, you're, then you're talking about domestication. And, and people are doing this. So there are now trials to domesticate some kinds of hookworms so that they could be given to people to restore this ancient partnership with, without some of its negative components. And on the one hand, this gets very elaborate. We really have to think about all of this. On the other hand, we're the ones who chose to live in this very unusual lifestyle relative to every other animal on earth. And it comes with it. It comes with these kinds of complicated deals that there was an amazing study a number of years ago of a hospital in Oregon where they compared the number of pathogens in a room with the best air filters available at the time to rooms where they just left the windows open. And what they found was that the rooms with the windows open had fewer, proportionally fewer pathogens. And so here's this measure of, boy, we think we're so fancy, and yet opening the window could be a, a healthier solution than our best technology and how do we think about this and when do we want that versus when do we actually really want things to be sterile and it's not going to be so simple but some parts of it we know people can do tomorrow and can help and the other is just to finish the thought a great study in finland for example that's mentioned in the book that of kids in backyards with more kinds of native plants and fewer kinds of native plants and the kids in the backyards with more kinds, kids whose backyards had more kinds of native plants 
had more kinds of microbes on their skin and were at reduced risk of allergy. And so this and subsequent studies have shown that maybe just being exposed to more kinds of plants, which is a really simple intervention, could be helpful. Is it a full solution? Well, probably not. Is it work just in Finland? I don't know yet. Nobody knows. But if some of these things are simple like that, we owe it to ourselves to figure them out and to start to implement them. And what we do know for sure is that if you're trying to live with your house sterile like the space station, that's a bad plan. That for sure does not lead to healthy living. You made a couple comments in, in your book on the wildlife of our bodies, one of which was that wild speculation is important for the advancement of, of science. And then and the other thing you said was that much of science is wrong. Fixing what's wrong with science is a super important part of science. And when you're doing science, to what extent do you want to allow yourself to engage in, in wild speculation? And to what extent do you need to rein that in and get back to rigorous testing of the ideas that you come up with? I think different scientists work in different ways. And like, that's very good for science. And so some individuals are going to be more on the, the wild speculation side, and some are going to be the test everything side. And then each individual has got a little bit of both. But for me personally, I like to have days where a new idea comes and we spend some time as a group of people talking about the idea and thinking for sure it's right, that th this is it and this is totally radical and all the other stuff is wrong and enjoying that for a moment and then bringing the hammer down on it to figure out, okay, what would it look like if this were really true? How would we test it? What comes next? And nine times out of 10, it's wrong. But for, for me, the joy that it might be right is a really important part of science. And then, then bring the hammer. We need, if you don't have the hammer, everything falls apart. The hammer or the knife or whatever the right analogy is there. But, but I think you also need this phase where you're exploring enough to, that you get to places that have been missed. And I mean, I think that's why lots of scientists got into science is to do that. And so we need to keep that. And as we've sped up the rate of science, it's become harder and harder to do that. Because we're teaching young people, well, you've got to write this many papers a year. You've got to get this many grants a year. You've got to outcompete the person next to you. And when you're doing that, it leads you towards safer and safer things. Because, oh, geez, if I've got to write all these papers this year, I can't go and have a wild idea that might be wrong for five months. And I think that's problematic. And it's hard because I don't know what to do about it, but I, I notice it. And at the same time, when you've got a student who's only around for so long, how long do you let them run down an idea that you think is wrong? And that's a really tricky part. And I don't, I don't know if it's in the wildlife for our bodies, but it was part of my, when I was interviewing people for that book, I talked a lot to a lot of people who were students of Jeff Gordon, who's one of the first microbiome researchers of the modern era, did amazing work. And all of his students were successful at that time and just doing great things. And so I started asking him, you know, what did he do that made you successful? Like, and I thought maybe he was a bully. Maybe he was, I, I didn't, I had no idea. And everyone said he always had a little bit of money available for our craziest ideas. And probably the truth is he had money available for crazy ideas, but also he was winnowing a little bit. You came in with five crazy ideas and he took four off the list, but you forgot about those four because he funded that fifth one. And so I think having money, having space for that sort of wildness to explore what we don't know. Yeah, it's important. 
Yeah, I think it's kind of like in business, right? Venture capitalists are pursuing the crazy ideas and then the big companies are pursuing the, the, the incremental, let's see what happens, change the color of the marshmallows in our cereal kind of thing. And if everybody's just focused on those little incremental discoveries, then we, we don't get the completely new radical insights. So we need to make sure that there is some funding for those crazy ideas. Now, you say that you spend one-third of your time on ants, one-third of your time on primates, one-third of your time on food. Is that, I think you said that somewhere in the book? Yeah, yeah, that's probably about true. I don't remember where I said that, but then that sounds like me. <laughs> Do you, does that mean you've eaten uh, plenty of ants and you've eaten plenty of primates in your time? And if so, what? how do they taste? I've eaten plenty of ants and many ants are very tasty. I mean, these taste like, a lot of them taste like sweet tarts are a little bit sour and, and crunchy. You know, queen ants are especially like queen leafcutter ants. They're big and fatty. You can often have them in Bolivia. They make them in uh, sultanias. And so it's like an empanada and then the insides of the ant is, is quite good. Interestingly, globally, they're actually very common food, but in, in North American and European food culture, they're rare. And so we came to imagine that it was a weird food and people stopped eating them. But in fact, that's very common. Monkey, I've, primates I've not had. I've watched them be eaten many a time. What about the uh, capybaras, the pecoras and the pacas and the warthogs? Have you tried any of those? Those apparently are the most, the tastiest. I've had peccary. They're regarded highly. It's the Spanish ham of the rainforest. <laughs> yeah, everywhere they live, they're they're viewed as very tasty, which also explains their relative rarity lots of places. And conversely, I've worked lots of places with howler monkeys where they're very common and they tend to be regarded as tasting terrible. And so their conservation status is pretty good. I think every one of these books seems to have grown out of the previous book and there's a lot of connections between them. Is there... A new book that's in embryonic form somewhere in the delicious book. There's a new book. Now, let me think. Does it come out of? Yeah. As an ecologist, one of the things that we get taught to do and to think about is what are general rules? We get taught sort of the economics of the living world. And we know a lot, like as e ecologists, we get together and those rules are very obvious to us that there are more species in the tropics, that big islands have more species and species are evolving more quickly on big islands, that, that species do better when they escape their predators and pathogens, that we're one of the species that's done that. And so all those kinds of rules that if I got around with ecologists, everybody'd say, oh yeah, we know all that stuff course. We haven't thought about what all those rules mean for the future enough. And so the next book thinks about that. And it draws threads out of these other books that are more elaborated. And so yeah, the germ was lurking. Although I never, you, I mean, you said this earlier, I never think about it that way, because I never know what the germ is till later. But I think it's often, it's an idea I've partially digested, and then it, it keeps growing and growing. And so that's the next book. Well, Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Delicious. Great book the wildlife of our bodies and never home alone. You will not look around the house or <laughs> look at your body differently after reading these books. I guarantee it. Thanks so much, Rob. Oh, what a great pleasure. And thanks for your show. It's, it's a great contribution. See you soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.